Chapter 5 of The First American Sister of Charity, Elizabeth Bailey Seaton, by John Clement Reveal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Fruit of Her Hands It is no difficult task to analyze the character and sanctity of Mother Seaton. Her character was as transparent as crystal, marked by directness, simplicity, tenderness, nobility, and strength. It was frank, open, cordial, sincere, and sealed by a refinement and charm of manner that won all hearts, those of her husband and children, of the little ones under her care, the sisters of her community, the Felices, and saintly men like Carol, Dubois, Cheverue, and Brute, whom God gave her as directors and guides. She was a woman well fitted to become the model of Catholic American womanhood. Made perfect in many things, she can be proposed as a pattern to maid, mother, wife, and widow, to teacher and religious. She knew what it is to be tenderly loved. She felt the heavy burden of her friend's forgetfulness and disdain. To her children, her husband, and her friends, she was devotedly attached for her affections were as strong as they were pure. Though she walked through life by her loved one's open graves, she never lost her trust and faith in God. In every stage of her life, she had made duty her watchword. In that duty, she never failed. Her naturally beautiful character was spiritualized and supernaturalized by prayer and union with God. As an Episcopalian, she had longed to be united with Christ. As a Catholic and a religious, she centered her life around the altar of her Eucharistic God. In Holy Communion, in Holy Mass, she found her strength and her greatest happiness. When those patriarchs of the Catholic Church in America, Brute or Dubourg or Dubois, offered the great sacrifice in the little chapel in the valley, and Mother Seton, with Cecilia and Harriet and Anna at her side, followed by her spiritual daughters, approached the holy table, the beholder forgot that they were living in the new world, and imagined that they were summoned back to the early days of Christianity. So fervent and so pure did the sisters appear. Deeply pious, she was thoroughly mortified. The cross, she knew, was both the symbol and the summary of the gospel. Self-abnegation was its first law. So she was mistress of herself, of her heart, and its affections. Unselfishness had been her distinguishing mark in the world. It stamped still more distinctively her whole life in religion. Had Elizabeth Seton died as the wife of William McGee Seton, she well might have uttered the words which the world's greatest dramatist put on the lips of the dying Catherine of Aragon, Cover me with maiden flowers, that all the world may know I died a chaste wife. What might not be said of the innocence and purity of her life in the cloister? Guide of others and invested with authority over them, she had first learned to obey. Not once in her life as a Catholic do we find her judgment or her will in opposition to the commands or suggestions of her superiors or spiritual guides. 
With a childlike simplicity she yielded herself to their wise direction. Yet she was a woman of unusual strength of character. Like the valiant woman of the Proverbs, she put out her hand to strong things, and her fingers took hold of the spindle. Elizabeth was an indefatigable worker in the cause of education, in the cause of the poor, in the interests of God. Under the guidance of the far-seeing men whom Providence sent her with such clearly marked design, she realized that a Christian education was the chief need of her times. Of formal pedagogy she knew little, perhaps, but she had known the joys and the responsibilities of motherhood. She understood children and loved them. Sympathy, kindness, gentleness marked her dealing with them. Like her own children, all children loved her and knew that in her they had a second mother. She had once known the stress of poverty. The poor were her friends. Her daughters, whether they wear the white cornet of Emmitsburg or the darker headdress of Mount St. Vincent on Hudson, or its fair daughters, Mount St. Vincent, Halifax, and Madison, New Jersey, whether they belong to the Cincinnati or the Greensburg, Pennsylvania foundations, are ever welcome and honored visitors among the lowly and the poor in the homes of suffering and want. Like the valiant woman described by the sacred writer, Mother Seton opened her hand to the needy and stretched out her hands to the poor. In 1814, almost at the very moment in that year when Washington was sacked, the capital burnt by the British, and an English fleet under Admiral Cockburn was ruthlessly harrying the shores of the Chesapeake, while, mid the rocket's red glare, Francis Scott Key was writing the Star-Spangled Banner. On the request of Bishop Egan of Philadelphia, she sent Sister Rose White to take charge of the orphan asylum in that city. It was the first mission of the Sisters of Charity in the United States. Their first labors were for the outcast. In 1817, Bishop Connolly of New York, hearing of the noble work done by the little Philadelphia community, earnestly begged the superior of Emmitsburg to come to the help of the abandoned children of her own native city. It was a request that could not be denied. The zealous Sister White, whose executive ability was remarkable, was detailed for the work. She and her two companions, Sister Cecilia O'Conway and Sister Felicite Brady, arrived in New York on June 23, 1817, and immediately began their work in a humble frame house in Mott Street. Here they laid the cornerstone of a mighty edifice, the splendor and beauty of which these humble workers did not dare foresee. A hundred years ago, Mother Seton's daughters had but one house in her native city. They now count their 35 convents, 49 parochial schools, 14 academies and high schools, one vocational school, six child-caring institutions, four hospitals, one home for the aged, and one college. They are seen in the magic city on the Hudson doing God's work, whatever it be, from the streets through which Elizabeth strolled as a child, almost from the battery she knew so well, to the woods fifteen miles away, 
where the gray Norman towers of Fonthill and the massive pile of Mount St. Vincent on the Hudson overlook the river and eloquently speak of the magnitude and the growth of a work which was evidently the work of God, for he has singularly blessed its every stage. Another pen, we hope, will describe more fully the growth of the work of the Sisters of Charity in New York. That work received an extraordinary impulse in 1846, at the time when the Emmitsburg community was making plans to be affiliated to the French Sisters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul, to adopt their dress and their rule. On the request of Bishop Hughes of New York, who wanted the sisters in his diocese to take charge of schools and asylums for boys, the New York sisters, with full ecclesiastical sanction, formed a second mother house, that, now known as Mount St. Vincent on Hudson. Its first superior was Elizabeth Doyle, in whom the spirit of the foundress lived anew. The fruit of Mother Seton's hands had now grown to maturity, the hands themselves were drooping with fatigue. They had toiled unselfishly and unremittingly at every task God had confided to them. Great joy had come to the foundress in the success of her work in the valley and in the missions of New York and Philadelphia. Sorrow was not wanting now. Her beloved friend Rebecca was taken away from her by a premature death. Filippo Felici had gone to his reward while all Baltimore, the Catholic Church in the United States, and the Holy Father in Rome had mourned over the death of Archbishop Carroll. She could never dream that her nephew, James Roosevelt Bailey, born in 1814, the year before John Carroll's death, would be one of his successors in his archiepiscopal see. Never strong, worn out by her austerities and labor, Mother Seton became so ill in the autumn of 1820 that it was thought she would die. Of death she was not afraid, and she calmly prepared for the last summons. Her days of sickness were one long meditation and prayer. Her memory was a storehouse of holy and pious thoughts. It was not difficult for her to commune with God then, for she had ever been most fervent in meditation and prayer. Her children, who now realized that they would soon lose her, showed her how deeply they loved her. Every care and attention that affection could lavish was given to the patient. They read to her the books she prized, passages from the life of St. Vincent de Paul and Mademoiselle Legras, now known as Blessed Louise de Marillac, his spiritual daughter, from the meditations of Father de Ponte, works which she herself had translated with unusual care and elegance from the French. They prayed with her. With her they were preparing for death, for the last lesson this valiant woman taught her children was how a Christian and a religious should die. Her daughter Catherine, one day to become a holy sister of mercy, never left her mother's side. The last scenes that took place between them were marked by such pathos, such faith and resignation to God's holy will, as to cause all that witnessed them the holiest emotions. To William Seton, then at sea as an officer on the USS Macedonian, returning from a lengthy cruise, her mother's heart turned with yearning 
for she knew that she would never again press him in her arms. Winter came and the patient grew weaker every day. The long nights reminded her of eternity. She yearned to pass it with God, but with her deep humility she feared the judgment seat of an all-just judge. But her friends and spiritual guides, Fathers Brute and Dubois, reminded her of God's mercy. She had known it too well to doubt their words. Her heart thanked him once more for all his fatherly tenderness, and above all for having brought her, in spite of her unworthiness, into the bosom of the true church. On December 31, 1920, she was able to receive Holy Communion. It was the last time she was privileged to receive her Eucharistic Lord. On the 2nd of January, Father Dubois administered extreme unction. Through their binding tears, her beloved Catherine and her spiritual daughters could only see her face transfigured with faith and love. Too weak to address her children, she begged Father Dubois, who was deeply moved, to ask her sisters to forgive her the scandal she might have caused, and begged them to be true children of the church and to love and keep their rules and holy vows. It was a simple but a sublime testament. She asked one of her sisters to recite her favorite prayer, the Anima Christi. Two days after, early in the morning of Thursday, January 4th, with her crucifix pressed to her lips and murmuring the sacred names of Jesus and Mary, she quietly passed away. In the presence of such a scene, our thoughts are those of her friend, Father Brute, who reached the deathbed a few moments after Mother Seton had expired. The next day he jotted down the following words. O Mother, O Elizabeth, O Faith Profound, O Tender Piety, Her eminent character, her indulgence to others, Her charity so careful to spare others, her attachment and gratitude to friends, her deep respect for the ministers of God and the least things of religion, heart so loving, so compassionate, so religious, so generous. Excellent mother, we lose you and mourn for you, but you are happy. But Mother Seton is not lost to us. She lives in the memory of her saintly lives and virtues. She lives in her works and in the thousands of her daughters who follow her rule and reproduce her virtues. On the first centennial of her saintly death, we thank God for his gift of Mother Seton and of the American Sisters of Charity to the Catholic Church in the United States. End of chapter 5 End of the First American Sister of Charity, Elizabeth Bailey Seton, by John Clement Reveal.